0: Turn with me, if you will, back to Acts chapter 19. Uh, It's page 928 in your pew Bibles, if you're using them. Page 928. We're going to be looking at verses 29 to 41, but I'm actually going to start at the beginning of this section, because that's what we started at a couple weeks ago. Acts 19 beginning in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, "'Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians "'is temple-keeper of the great Artemis, "'and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? "'Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, "'you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, "'for you have brought these men here "'who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. "'If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him "'have a complaint against any one, "'the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. "'Let them bring charges against one another.' But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Uh, we were talking last about uh, Paul's time in Ephesus and how conflict with the culture had arisen. Uh, and it's not a fight Paul was looking for. It just kind of came to him in this case. He's, he's kind of learned to be a little less of, of an instigator. <laughs> but two weeks ago, we saw uh, that Paul got in some hot water with the local labor union's which is basically just how things work in most American cities, too. Um, city politicians face the same pressures every election cycle. We're watching it now. We have the primaries on Tuesday, right? And you see all the signs. I have enough election flyers at my house to paper my living room. And in a lot of cities, like Allentown, the, the unions are a strong political force. Not the churches, that's for sure, anymore, um, But you'll know who they support because they'll have people at the polls. They're going to have signs up everywhere, all that jazz. Uh, And most of you know, there was a time I was pretty involved in politics back in in Philly where I grew up. And (laughs) when I was working for the local party, we used to go out and remove our opponents' yard signs. Um, Not from people's lawns. That was illegal. But especially on the boulevard because at the time there was a law, there had been, that, that you weren't supposed to have them on public property at all. And so we were like, well, we'll just... Selectively remove our opponents' signs, you know. Um, So we figured we were being good citizens, more or less, but just in case we did it at night to avoid being harassed. But one year when we were doing this, we were actually chased down in our car. Me and my, my brother and a couple other guys, we were cornered at a light, and they cornered us. They hemmed us in on the side and in front and just blocked us there, and these union guys came out and started hammering on our car and threatened us and told us they were going to be here all night and they were going to have their eye on this car. And we were angry and offended, but we weren't stupid. We went home because <laughs> an angry union is a scary union, um, And, you know, history is replete with stories of workers in in a given society starting uprisings and riots, Uh, you know, from, they start off, usually they start off with legitimate complaints, but then they sometimes turn bloody and brutal, and so you have the Bolshevik Revolution, the French Revolution, even the American Revolution, uh, you can look at petty stuff like the Whiskey Rebellion, right? We were talking about that with the kids where a bunch of farmers got all up in arms in the western end of Pennsylvania, and, and George Washington had to march there with troops as the sitting president. The only time this has happened in our history. It's fun stuff, you know? And and, and every one of these revolutions starts off as a complaint and usually has some root in a, in, a, in a legitimate complaint, and usually it's a financial complaint. I'm not making enough money. I blame X, so therefore X must be overthrown, Right? But revolutions seldom stay about the money, because money is a triggering factor. But, and it, it, it is a triggering factor because it's something we all understand. We all use this stuff, right? Um, but usually the revolution takes on a moral tone at some point and becomes a crusade. And, you know, so the Bolsheviks fought over class. The French fought over, I don't know, everything. Um, LAUGHTER America started by fighting over taxes, but the moral focus became freedom, liberty, right? And, and similarly, the tidal wave in Ephesus started as a financial question. We saw that last time. The craftsmen are suffering financially because of Paul's gospel. The, the sale of shrines and you know, various <clears throat> other knickknacks probably has fallen precipitously. And this town is a town whose economy is tightly tied to the cult of Diana. So the diminishing of that cult was naturally bad for business, But Demetrius, who sort of sparked this riot, was not concerned only with money. What he perceives from Paul is not just an attack against his wallet, but against his values. Because in reality, we all, we don't just want to make money. I mean, we want to make money, right? But we don't just want to make money. We want to do something beneficial for mankind. Because you can get a paycheck from a lot of places, but we want to believe that our work is important, don't we? Uh, that it serves some greater purpose that it has lasting value. If I if I even if I spend my life making widgets, that's not a bad thing, but it doesn't make a huge impact on the world. But if I build a house or a company or an empire, that feels more significant. And I'm going to want to use the money that I'm making even making widgets to invest in things like that. Right? Uh, it's easier to feel fulfilled in your work if there's not only money involved, but also virtue. If my job is making widgets, I'm going to invest those earnings in something more fulfilling than widget making. Uh, and we all do this on some level. I think it's a natural feeling. It's partly why even non-Christians desire children a lot of the times, because not, it's not so much that they view children as a blessing from the Lord, but because it feels meaningful. It's a lasting impact on the world, something that will last and be here even after I'm gone. And we want to feel like our life is meaningful and productive in that sense. And I think that's a large part of why Demetrius is upset. Uh, Not only is his work very profitable, but also in his mind it's virtuous. He's brought Diana, this great goddess, right into people's homes. He feels good about that. He feels good about his work. It's not only lucrative, it's fulfilling. He's making a difference for people. But Paul comes along with his message of a greater god who doesn't live in shrines and statues, and he's not only killing business, but implying that work is not virtuous. By default, he's saying that Demetrius' work is pointless. If it's not really a god or a goddess, then who cares? And even worse, the implication is it might be immoral. That, that Demetrius' lifetime achievements that are all over in these various homes in town, that they're worthless and unethical. It's very insulting if you're Demetrius. Paul is basically attacking Diana at her very core. He's offering something better. He's offering a god who is purer than this goddess of purity and who lives not on your mantle but in your heart and does so for free. It's like giving away craft beer next to the guy who's selling Natty Light. You know, it's really not fair. And this is why Demetrius calls in the entire trade union and even his competitors to make a stand against the tide of the gospel. Because Paul isn't just undercutting business, he's undermining society at this point. And when we last left off, Paul wasn't even in the picture yet. We, we stopped at verse 28, uh, where all the tradesmen have found a business slogan that summarizes everything. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That sums up their business concerns, but it's also an expression of their patriotism and a declaration of religious devotion. It's all of these things. They're standing up for their values, you see. It's the equivalent in Philly, you have an Eagles chant. You guys know the Eagles chant. Joe doesn't want to hear it. It's a stupid thing. E A G L E S, Eagles, right? This is, what we, this is what we all yell. Jake and my girls know it. Uh, the point is not just to prove that we Philadelphians can, in fact, spell. It's a combination of things. It's a combination of pride and, and defiance and anger and joy and resentment. All the things that represent Philadelphia, right? It's what we say when we want to get our people excited. It's also what we do to shout down opposing voices like visiting Cowboys fans. It's also what we chant at Phillies games when they're playing badly because there's nothing like letting your baseball team know that their performance is so disappointing that we're already looking forward to football season. (laughs) But the Ephesian craftsmen, according to verse 28, they're enraged. They're super angry. And they have the most at stake in this debate. Uh, But outrage by one group has a tendency to spill over to other people. Other people get interested, and that's what we begin to see in verse 29. It says, so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So the scene is getting rowdy, right? Uh, the, the city's becoming something of a flash mob. They all pour into the theater, presumably to make a public stink. And, and as we heard from some politicians even last summer, that a riot is the language of the unheard. As uh, a quote we heard a lot, I think it's a misuse of a quote by Martin Luther King, but that's definitely often the justifying idea. I can't get justice through legal means, so I'm going to make a public scene. And that was a rationale for riots in many cities last summer. It was also the rationale for the January 6th debacle in D.C. Uh, We all realize that getting things done legally often looks slow and painful. If you've ever been in a lawsuit, you know that this is the case. Getting a hearing takes forever. I'm fighting a, a traffic ticket that I got on my way to Presbytery last month. I'm fighting it not because I'm innocent. I'm guilty as charged. Um, But the office, when I called, advised me to plead innocent and see what happens and if they'll be lenient. But I am literally not going to get a hearing on this thing until September. That's how slow business gets done in Quakertown, anyway. Some of you are dealing with much more serious legal issues, and nothing grates on the nerves quite like a slow legal process. It's also a common complaint in our Presbyterian system. We solve everything by forming a committee, right? It's what you do. And it feels like kicking the can down the road, but it's actually a good and, I think, godly way of calming tensions and thinking things through. But a slow process is not inspiring, is it? Riots and speeches, those are inspiring. That's exciting stuff. So all of Ephesus is suddenly caught up in the moment. Somebody grabs these two guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, known to be Paul's friends, Luke tells us only that they're Macedonians and part of Paul's traveling entourage. You start to get the impression Paul uh, has a bigger entourage than we realized at first. He's becoming a little more of an institution. So these guys get dragged down into the theater as if they're on trial, not formally, but trial by mob, which is never good news. I've said it many times, but mobs are not rational groups right by nature. Uh, So things are, are ugly at this point. Well, what's Paul going to do? Again, we haven't seen Paul since he was just calmly making plans. I think I'll go to Rome, and, you know, he's sitting at home thinking these things through. Is he even paying attention? Where the heck is the guy? Well, Luke tells us, verse 30, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So, where's Paul? Paul's on the sidelines. But itching for a fight, the confrontation And yet we continue with the theme of Paul's silence, a rare thing for Paul, and not something he does willingly here, but he has many friends that are lined up to stop him. Now, Paul's had two years of successful ministry in Ephesus. We read that in a previous previous section. It's the longest time he has spent in any single town since he started doing foreign missions work, and yet we've had very little in the way of actual recorded dialogue other than when he first got to town. And in this final story, the only thing Paul has done is make plans to leave. And not really in a hurry, either. He sent an advance crew to set him up in Macedonia. He's got Timothy and Erastus up there basically doing the the, the role of what the Secret Service does when the president's visiting any city. They're laying out traveling plans and arranging for security or whatever. So Paul's got this system now. He's no longer a fly-by-night street preacher. He's become an organized ministry, has Paul. But something inside him is still kind of itching for this confrontation. He remembers the glory days of battling the opposition right in the town square. He's done that a few times. And sure, it usually ended with him and his friends getting beat up. But, you know, Paul is never afraid of the fight. He wants to get in there, and he's going to mix it up. And it's not just because he likes a challenge, right? He's got friends mixed up in this thing, too. He's got Gaius and Aristarchus who are in a pretty bad spot, these Macedonian guys. Probably starting to wonder, like, you know, if they were Macedonian, why didn't he send them to Macedonia? Why are they stuck here doing this? I don't know. So Paul, I assume, feels a moral obligation as well to go put himself on the line. If the crowd is looking for him, why should Gaius and Aristarchus be in danger, right? And frankly, it would seem as if confronting the crowd would be the only proper thing to do at this point. Hiding would be kind of cowardly and very unlike Paul. Very unlike Paul to leave his friends in the lurch. That's kind of weaselly. And Paul knows that. So when somebody storms into the house where he's staying and says, Hey, Paul, there's a mob forming and they've got Gaius and Aristarchus and tar and feathers and things are getting ugly. He does the natural thing and announces, Well, I'm going to go out there and do something about it. But the disciples won't let him. It's an interesting way Luke words it here. Paul's not typically a man who asks for permission to do things. He does what he thinks is right. He doesn't wait around to get a lot of opinions, but the disciples are like, they're just straight up like, no, no, dude. It's not a suggestion. There's no pleading with Paul. They are literally restraining him. And as that wrestling match is going on, he gets word from another group. In the following verse, it says, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, Asiarch is not something Luke explains right here, but these were basically government officials. It just means that they were rulers over Asia, the province of Asia, Asia Ark. Um, so not just city officials. These are like provincial officials, like you know, governors at a higher level. Uh, so Luke tells us they're actually friends of Paul's. Now, you would think that having friends in high places would be helpful here, but that's exactly what's so striking about the situation. The provincial government is basically warning Paul that things have gotten beyond their control in downtown Ephesus. This would be like Governor Wolf warning you, don't go to Philly, I can't guarantee your safety. That might be true. (laughs) He doesn't have enough state troopers or guardsmen to help you down there. But, I mean, that's a scary thought when you think about it, isn't it? Just like it was scary last summer. I mean, every time we've seen any riots anywhere in history, really. I mean, but last summer, how many times did you hear governors basically admitting, look, I'm kind of powerless to do anything, steer clear. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. The thing's gotten too big, too quick, and at this point, no one is in control. And it started with Demetrius, but he's lost in the crowd at this point, too. We don't even know where he is. And the provincial government has no plan yet. And I'm sure there are Roman troops stationed somewhere in the province of Asia, but they won't get there in time to save Paul. That's pretty certain. And they ain't enough cops in the town to control the scene, so Paul's security cannot be guaranteed. But like many mobs, this is not a group with a singular focus. What does it say in verse 32? Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Everyone likes a party, right? This is perhaps the worst thing about a mob. Most of them don't know what they're doing. And again, we see this throughout history. I mean, how many Russians really understood what they were creating when they overthrew the monarchy in 1917? How many Frenchmen understood what the many revolutions they concocted were actually about? I mean, I studied modern European history. I still don't remember a one of them, you know? This is part of the difficult task for historians, really, is understanding what events mean when so many people at the time had so many different feelings about it, and you only have so many records. I mean, it's still a matter of dispute how many American colonists even supported the American Revolution. We can only guess at the numbers, and we can only guess what everyone was thinking. What inspired some Southerners who didn't even own slaves to fight for the Confederacy? I don't know. It's hard to figure out with any certainty. All you can do is retroactively kind of look for trends and understand what was happening. But in the moment, things are often very cloudy. I've been reading War and Peace by Tolstoy, because I like depressing novels, apparently. And um, War and Peace is partly about war and partly about peace. Actually, there hasn't been a whole lot of peace yet, but anyway, they've been at war with Napoleon pretty much since the get-go, but it's amazing. Every time there's a battle, it gets reported as essentially a victory back home, yet they've been losing the entire time, (laughs) and I'm only a third of the way through the book, but that's the way things have been going. It's not great. And I think that's true to life. Hindsight is usually twenty-twenty, But Luke records the true feeling in the moment, which makes me wonder if maybe he or his source were actually even in the crowd. You know, they saw a march going on and just jumped in to see what's happening. Hey, a parade! All right, guys. And they go down to the theater, and it's like, oh, okay. So that's what's going on. Our buddy down there is in trouble. There's a great scene in the movie, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, I'm not saying that's a great Christian movie to watch or anything like that, but uh, Gene Wilder's deaf, Richard Pryor is blind, and they both get arrested. But when they escape the jail and they see some sort of protest, and they decide, well, we're going to get lost in this crowd that's marching. And the funniest thing is watching Richard Pryor, who's blind, with his fist up, walking with protesters, having no idea what's going on around him. You know, it's a miracle he's even walking the right way. And it's very funny. But, you know, similarly, th- this crowd overall has no idea what they're here for, no more than Richard Pryor knows, right? which is a great illustration of most opposition to the gospel in the culture. The world is hostile to the gospel, but they don't really know why. And the more conversations you have with people in the culture, the more you find that opposition to Christ is often incoherent at best. Because in reality, it represents a whole bunch of passions that are warring against Jesus and each other and the Holy Spirit, But they have a hard time getting on the same page a lot of the time. The common thread of many rebellions can be hard to find. The first part of this assembly has no common thread. Now, this is a theater in Ephesus that held about 25,000 people comfortably. I'm guessing there was an overflow crowd. And there's nothing uniting the outrage at first, but everyone wants the action. And so they get some other random character who shows up on the scene all of a sudden. And this is what finally gives them a unified message here. Verse 33 and 34 Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, this little thing threw me off at first because there are a few other Alexanders that are mentioned in the New Testament. It was a common name. This Alexander apparently has no connection to any of the other ones. Uh, As far as we can see here, anyway, he's a Jew, because the Jews had put him forward. Now, some of the other Ephesians are egging him on, say something, you know, and and we're left to imagine what he was intending to say, because he doesn't get real far, does he? The best guess we have is that he wants to distance the Jews from Paul, right, right? Uh, If the city is turned against Paul, the Jews have some reasons to feel invested in the issue. And on one hand, they want to make clear that just because Paul is in fact Jewish, yes, and used to hang out in our synagogue, yeah, he ain't one of us. And moreover, since they've hated him for quite some time, this is also a great opportunity to get rid of Paul if we can, once and for all. I think Alexander intends to be a witness for the prosecution on that end. But so confused is the crowd that they shout him down too. They don't want to hear from Paul or any other Jew. They're not interested in distinctions at this point. And suddenly they find their common thread, Artemis, Diana. That's what this is about, Our Lady of Ephesus. And for two hours they shout her name. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. That's one monotonous worship service. (laughs) I didn't grow up in a liturgical service, and so I, I've heard some repetitive praise and worship songs in my time. <laughs> Peter Green was telling me this week down in, you know, near Carlisle uh, that he visited a church not long ago that sang an 11-verse hymn. It was out of the Psalter, but good heavens, 11 verses. He said they started, and he was like, they can't possibly be intending to do all of these, and then they did. But this is crazier, and it gives you some perspective on the passion in this crowd. The crowd has energy from the start, but anger without an organizing principle is, is kind of just all over the place. When it gets organized, now it becomes dangerous. John Stott calls these hysterical screams. And he quotes another commentator who says, In the final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is scream itself hoarse. I think that's still true. I think a lot of opposition to the gospel is little more than yelling, hoarse screaming, a lot of heat and not much light. And so I think this scene would have been intimidating. A crowd of nearly 30,000 screaming in unison is an awesome thing. I remember being at a Phillies game back in 2009, I believe. Not one of those ones where we chanted the Eagles. I actually don't remember the game at all, but I do remember a spontaneous cheer breaking out of USA, USA, right? So you had about 40,000 people in unison chanting together, USA. And I joined in, although it took a while before I even realized why, right? It turned out that the word had gone out that we had finally found and dispatched Osama bin Laden. And by the end, you know, people are smiling, people are crying, people are laughing. The Phillies organization only gave, like, a passing kind of recognition of the moment. They put a flag on the jumbotron for a few seconds, you know, and people got all revved up. But it was awe inspiring, you know? Well, Roman theaters were designed for acoustics far more than Citizens Bank Park. Uh, They didn't have sound systems back then, so they were built, these theaters, into hillsides and were designed like whispering walls so that from the front you can be heard clearly in the back, even speaking at a normal level. So this would have been a raucous sound throughout the city and all the way down to the harbor. And it's the sort of thing that makes government officials nervous. It's the sort of building frenzy that could easily end in a great deal of bloodshed. Gaius and Aristarchus spent two very uncomfortable hours listening to this. And Paul would certainly have heard it from wherever he was. And he has to remain there, pacing the floor, fearing the worst, I assume praying. It's a helpless feeling for Paul. Two guys are likely to die because of him, and he can't do a thing about it. So how's the Holy Spirit going to fix this one? Like so many dilemmas I think we face in our walk with Christ, this scene doesn't look spiritual, not on the surface, it looks political, like the entire sentiment of society is moving against you, and it seems like nothing short of a Moses-style miracle would quiet the situation, like a pillar of fire or something like that you got 30,000 angry people beating the drum of Diana. Save the city! Save the temple! Save our heritage! Think of the children! No one in the theater understands the gospel, but they can sense that it represents a change and that the system they live under could crumble. So what grand miracle can bring calm to this situation? It says... And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything fu- further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. A city clerk! <laughs> That's what God uses? How does a clerk pacify 30,000 angry people? There was a movie, I think it was back in the 90s, called Clerks that my brother watched me. I don't recommend it, but the only point is that the title is meant to inform you right off the bat that the main characters are clerks and therefore not to be envied, right? It's a lowly position, minding the till, keeping the books. I've actually found a, a newfound respect for clerks since becoming a pastor, because our denomination uses clerks all over the place in Presbyterianism, right? The clerk of Presbytery is supposed to be the expert who maintains order. Uh, Mel Farrar, down at uh, Quaker Quakertown, he, he's done it for years. Now Tom Keane is taking over, but they both get that job because, one, they have a deep knowledge of the rules, and two, a certain cool temperament. Elder Harley is our session clerk. I'm not sure who he paid off for that honor, but anyway. um, Just kidding. John's a good man. It's a job that you tend to keep for a long time, right? In our denomination, very few people have that rare mix of character traits that the job requires. The book smarts and the street smarts to keep everything on the level. You have to walk a fine line and keep cool when there's hotheads on all sides. Now, this guy was a city clerk. I don't know what that means, exactly. But like our presbytery clerk, he does seem to know the rules, doesn't he? He knows that the people here are running a serious risk. Because the city may not have enough manpower to shut this down right away, but if the crowd does enough damage, some legions will be here within the next couple of days. And Rome doesn't like disturbances. And so this nameless clerk is scared by what he sees going on here. The last thing he wants to see is the city destroyed. Because in Roman times, the only thing scarier than a mob was the army that Rome would send to crush one. The Jews would learn this the hard way a few years after this. So just as the proximate cause of Demetrius' complaint was financial, this guy's concern is for the city, the safety and peace of the city, and the city is part of his job, right? He's playing the role of the eldest child. It, you know, I, I've been known to yell at my kids for yelling. Ironic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> makes you wonder where they get it from. But uh, after I've threatened everyone for making too much racket, it doesn't take long before usually the youngest Gwen starts back in and forgets what they were told. And that's when you know you can hear over here the older ones in a horse we're all going to end up in trouble, you know. You can just overhear them hushing them up. And that's the position of this clerk. Uh, If the mob keeps it up and the legions show up tomorrow, everyone's going to be in trouble, not least of all me, because I stood by while it all happened. So this insignificant clerk manages to bring peace where no one else probably could have. Well, what's the significance of this story? I'm titling this message, Quiet Riot, after the band. And also, because despite the ESV heading, A Riot at Ephesus, nothing happens. Ultimately, this whole ordeal ends up being much ado about nothing. So what's the significance? What does this story mean? Why does Luke bother telling it? Well, I think there's a few important takeaways First off, we see that the culture really doesn't know what it's doing. It was Jesus who said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The more perceptive unbeliever can sense that the gospel means trouble, but they don't really know why. And even if they can articulate a reason, it's not usually honest, because they don't really know themselves well enough. So unbelief will hide behind science, or humanitarianism, or justice, you name it. But they don't really know what's driving the animosity any more than the Ephesian crowd knew why they were in the theater. Everyone has a bit part in this human drama, but nobody really understands it. It's just like that guy said that Stock quotes that all they can do is scream themselves hoarse. It's also worth noting that, once again, Paul never has to lift a finger... For God to solve the problem, Paul doesn't say a word. His friends won't leave him, let him leave the house. He never shows his face. Paul contributes exactly nothing to the resolution of this story. Point being no matter what problem you're facing, the solution is not usually found in you. It's not up to you to fix what's wrong with society. And I believe Paul's friends were right. He would likely have been killed if he showed his face at the theater. So a big lesson here is just don't go to the theater. Call it the Abe Lincoln rule. Is that too soon? I only mean that slightly in jest. Uh, I think there's symbolism here. I, I think we could all stand to spend less time playing into the world's drama. Theater majors study drama. Right? That's what this arena is here for. It's a theater. It's where drama unfolds, where people go for entertainment. It's basically the communal television of Ephesus. It's Netflix, the internet, and the political arena. It's all wrapped up in one. The scene is basically a cultural drama unfolding, the Ephesian drama, writ large. But generally speaking, we in the church are not called to enter into that drama Not in that sense. It's not our job to make brilliant speeches and win the culture back. How much time do Christians waste battling the culture? And honestly, how many meaningful victories do we have to show in the culture wars? Not a whole lot. And that's largely because it's not a fair playing field. It's not a fight that's likely to end well. You're fighting on their terms. And that's what Paul, I think, was maybe tempted to do here. He wanted to go down and face down the entire culture of Ephesus in one fell swoop. It would be like a Twitter battle, but with an angry mob standing there ready to kill you. No good can come of that. So God was pleased instead to use a lowly clerk to bring peace. Which is another worthwhile point in itself, because God here, you'll notice, uses Roman law... Roman legions and a Roman bureaucrat to save Paul and his friends. That's not the last time we're going to see him doing this. God can use anything, and I think sometimes we need to be okay with praying and waiting and letting God work through the system, even fallen human systems. But alongside all that, I find perhaps most interesting, just as a point of study, the case that the clerk makes against the mob. This case has three parts, and I think it echoes a lot of solid truth that we should take to heart in the church. He starts by talking about the cult of Artemis, Diana herself, and how Ephesus is undeniably the keeper of the temple, which is a worldwide attraction. We still have the sacred stone, apparently a meteorite of some kind. None of that has changed, but basically his point is that Artemis shouldn't need our help. Nothing Paul can say is going to change Ephesus. He's just one man. If Artemis is truly our guardian, Paul won't be able to change that. Real gods are not toppled by single men or by slight cultural shifts. But then he basically sticks up for Paul and his friends. He says, look, these guys are not sacrilegious blasphemers. They've never slighted Artemis directly, they've gone after idolatry in a general sense. But Paul and his friends have not been disrespectful. And finally, he basically appeals to them to let the system work. He says, look, Demetrius, there's the courts. Sue him if you think you have a case. Do that. If there's a bigger problem, that's what the provincial government is here for. But if you don't watch it, you're going to get old-fashioned military justice. So let the system do its job. And I think maybe the biggest lesson to learn here is that if this clerk is being honest, Paul's public testimony and reputation as an evangelist is not sometimes maybe what we've pictured. Because I said earlier that Paul was eager for the fight, but it might be truer to say that he was eager to defend himself and his friends on the merits. Because the testimony of the public officials, and I don't think this guy has incentive really to lie in this case, his testimony is that Paul is not a troublemaker. And I think in some ways he becomes yet another unbeliever in Ephesus who speaks a lot of truth. Just as the demoniac spoke truth to the sons of Sceva, and Demetrius spoke some truths about the gospel as well, now you have this clerk actually making some good points. What he's saying is Paul's energy has not been spent on attacking the sacred idols of this town just to be an antagonist. He's not at war with Ephesus. At least not in any obvious way. He lives at peace. Paul gets along with the pagans. He makes friends with the pagan governing officials. He is an upstanding citizen. He undermines pagan theology, but not by frontal attacks and insults, but rather by showing them a better way. He doesn't spend his days trashing Artemis or the city. He spends them instead making tents, making friends, and preaching on the weekends. The church grows and the word is prevailing mightily, not because Paul is known for being a jerk, but for the exact opposite. Some of us need to hear that. I feel like so much of apologetics in the church, if I go to an apologetics, apologetics section in a bookstore, if they have such things anymore, it's going to be mostly, sort of, a lot of it will be attacks on certain other points of view. And so there's a place for that. But I think we all have certain errors that we find just unforgivable in the culture. And the culture, let's be honest, the culture's really screwed up. We know this. But there is a way to battle the spirit of the culture, the spirit of the age, without battling the people in it. Maybe it's the old cliche of loving the sinner and hating the sin. Maybe it's not expecting Christ-likeness out of non-Christian people. Maybe it means knowing that sanctification is a process and it takes years. But Paul doesn't sabotage or desecrate the temple. He trusted the Holy Spirit to work in his time. And ultimately, it takes over 400 years, but eventually, the Temple of Artemis was decommissioned. And today, only one part of one pillar remains. And the point is that God is patient. And we should be, too. It's a lesson I I have to keep learning. Uh, We were on our way down to this conference last week, and I think I kind of set the whole week off on a bad tone, and George and I are still trying to, like, sort through the emotions of the week. But we ran out of gas on the way there, and I was so impatient. It had never happened before. I was so upset, and it threw everything off for the rest of the day. So I kind of ruined Mother's Day. I still owe her, but I am not a patient person, but God is patient, and trusting God's timing is hard, trusting the spirit is hard, but we don't need to make the fights happen, and it's not to say that Christians will never have conflict with the culture, of course we will. The important thing is that when the culture comes and says terrible things about us, let it be slander. Don't justify it. Don't be what they accuse us of being unless they're accusing us of the gospel. We should be so upstanding that even some unbelievers would rush to our defense. And remember that Jesus was not primarily a culture warrior, and yet the culture eventually killed him anyway. So no, you can't avoid the conflict but because of his death and resurrection and his ascension and because he sent the Holy Spirit, all the stuff that we're celebrating this week and next, right, we can face this conflict and we can do it calmly. And the gospel will impact the culture in God's time. So follow the A. Lincoln rule. Stay out of the theater. We don't have to rise to our own defense. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the heart of the king is in your hands and even the heart of a lowly clerk in a city is in your hands. Lord, lowly judges, IRS officials, all manner of things are in your hands and you use them all. Lord, it is a hard thing to know that we cannot avoid conflict with the world that we're in. And to be told that we need to walk in with an attitude of peace towards it is really difficult, Lord. And I think we spend a lot of our time sort of trying to calcify ourselves and and brace ourselves for for the attack. Lord, help us to be patient, to trust that you are at work, and Lord, not to just willfully go and make enemies, but to bring the gospel to people, Lord, the message of hope, the message of redemption. Lord, we pray these things. Help us to be faithful this week. In Jesus' name, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.